That's the intro music. That's how it goes. How's this that podcast? I feel like a UFC, a WWE intro. No, mate. Well, we're back in the No Property Podcast for another week. We're getting consistent with these episodes now, Mr. Beadle. I love it. It's a gloomy day here in uh, the Newcastle studio. And, mate, we've got a, uh, a lot to cover. A lot. 45 to 50 minutes of just absolute property gold. Bit of chest my, pop. New, my new pink, uh, My new pink flamingo shirt. Henderson, H on the thing. Henderson on the chest. Flamingo on the right-hand side, Henderingo. Mate, let's dive on into it. Let's dive on in. Mate, today's topics and the podcast at hand, I'm thinking we talk about lending. It's a topic that's on everyone's mind. We'll talk about picking lenders, the different types of repayments, how servicing works, uncover you know lenders, brokers, all the nuts and bolts of that. Mm-hmm. We'll touch on different types of purchases through buying in an individual name, trust, companies, or an SMSF. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll touch on a bit of the market conditions at the moment auction clearance race, the building crisis, and then we may wrap up if we've got time with a new hot tip of the week and some questions. Mate, let's jump straight on in. So the the lending environment right now. Mate, she's... um, It's interesting, right? It we spoke about it last episode. Every half a percent interest rate increase is... Uh, is five percent on the on the servicing we, yep. we ran through an example during the week or through our social channels you know if interest rates are at 0.1 percent with a you know family with a combined income of 170k and you know standard expenses you had a borrowing capacity um, of about 1.15 to 1.2 million you know if that same borrower had a cash rate of uh 2.35 percent i think mm-hmm. the number was that borrowing capacity goes from almost 1.2 million down to eight, you know, 850, which is. I think it was 970 at 235. I think you're wrong. You want me to, you want me to double confirm? Yeah, double this? check. Mate, I don't, I don't forget numbers, my friend. You shouldn't, you shouldn't doubt Henderingo. Ready? Yep. So we've got. Uh, here so we go. it was. We've got 0.1%, 1.35%, and yep. then 2.85%, 850K. Yeah, so 2.85. I said 2.35, so slightly slightly off. off. Yeah, so look, significant impact. Obviously, the cash rate at the moment is 1.35%. So essentially, the the difference in borrowing capacity from the start of the year when interest rates were 0.1% or the cash rate was 0.1%, that borrower had a 1.15 mil roughly servicing. Now, that same borrower has about a 980 servicing. Quite a difference. Pretty significant, you know, impact. You're talking 150 to 200 grand or 15 to 20%, which is a lot, right? Mm. Has the market come off by 15 or 20%? I don't believe so. So essentially your borrowing capacity has come down much faster than how the market has reacted to the the interest rate increases. And I guess on that one uh, piece of data analytics coming from the the Mr. Analyst is an interesting statistic for Australia. Now, in residential property, we haven't. This data came out from the uh, RP Data Core Logic from June 2022. So the current property market as a whole, aggregately, is worth 10 trillion. We only have 2.1 trillion worth of outstanding debt across the board, bringing the total LVR debt to value ratio at 21%. Not bad, huh? I wish my portfolio was sitting at a 21% LVR. We'd be sitting pretty, wouldn't we? Um, yeah, so essentially what that means is overall Australians, 
you know, as much as in the media people are probably reading and seeing that, you know, we've, we're the most indebted we've ever been, um, you know, our, our essentially consumer debt is, is, is extremely high. Like, you know, I think the numbers don't lie. And let's hypothetically say that that 10 trillion is inflated by 10% and really our, our overall value is only 9 trillion. Hmm. But our debt remains the same at 2.1 or 2 trillion you're still sitting at a 30% LVR, which is extremely low in comparison to, you know, what people probably think. Um, so that, that's that's an interesting factor and, and that probably plays into, um, you know, most borrowers, to be honest, not feeling the pinch all that much, right? I think the borrowers are probably feeling the pinch the, the most right now with interest rate increases are people who have just come into the marketplace, right? Mm. People who are fresh in, haven't really experienced, you know, repayments increasing before, um, have a high LVR on their and their overall asset or portfolio that they have, they're probably feeling it the most. But I think another thing to remember is as Australians, we're probably the most house proud nation in the world. Um, and I would say pretty confidently that most people would not pay every other bill <laughs> And sell most of their shit to make sure well, their mate, mortgage is paid. There's um there's afterpay and credit cards mm. and all that other stuff, which Australians Uber eats. Yeah, it's crazy. So like you know, mortgages will always be paid. It's the last yeah. thing that people won't pay. I, I I strongly believe that. So let's um let's run into then serviceability, how it works, how it's calculated. Mm. So we've we've understood as a whole we've got quite, you know, relatively small debt levels in comparison to our values. What's the starting point for the average, you know, punter out there who wants to get their foot in the door? How does servicing work? How do we calculate it? And then with that serviceability, how much deposit should we be thinking of saving first? So serviceability is essentially, it's a word that means in layman's terms, how much the bank will lend you, how the bank calculates based on your income and expenses, how much debt they'll give you. And the word is servicing or serviceability. So essentially... What most lenders do, first tier lenders, like you know, and lenders who run by the same policies, is that they will look at the interest rate, and let's hypothetically say, for layman's terms, the interest rate is five percent right now. Mm-hmm. They don't calculate your repayments at five percent. They put a thing called a buffer on that, which means the big buffer. Yeah, it starts with a B U double F E R buffer. <laughs> um, you know, so so they go, okay, well, yep, the real interest rate's five and a half or five percent. But we want to make sure that John and Sarah, they can repay their loan if it gets to 7.5%. So we're going to calculate their servicing at 7.5%. Even though the rates are not there, we're going to do it anyway. So straight away, you get a 2.5% buffer put on top. Now, if it's an investment property, let's hypothetically say you're getting 1000 bucks a week rent just for round numbers. The bank says, no, 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 no. You're paying 7.5% interest, but you're only getting 600 bucks a week. We're going to shave 40% of your rental income, for example. So they're essentially stress testing that borrower to make sure that if all shit hit the fan, they have some level of, of, of stretch to be able to afford it. Mm. If they assessed borrowers at the exact rates of today, you'd be able to borrow a lot more money, but you'd have very little flex as to movements in the economy right Mm. so that's how servicing is calculated now every lender is slightly different in how they calculate servicing right every lender has their ideal client avatar meaning their ideal person they'd like to lend to right that fits into their little mold Um, we've also got non-bank lenders who don't look at people 
the same way as a normal bank has to because they don't run under the same regulation. Um, but but the, the, the big misconception people have is if I'm an investor and I buy a property that is positively geared and that puts $100 a week in my pocket after expenses, the bank will look at that property as covering myself. So it'll have no impact on my servicing, which means if I buy a $500,000 property and it covers itself, the bank will essentially say, I don't have that debt and I can buy more. That's not the truth. And that's why you hear a lot of these property experts and spruikers and all these people saying, positively geared property is the way to go. That's how you scale a portfolio, put them in different trusts and structures and you'll be able to get around it. It's all bullshit. It's you big know? bullshit. Yeah. It's, um, it doesn't matter how you yeah. have your property structured. It doesn't matter you know, what names you've got on different things. Like the reality is the banks are smart. So the lenders are smart. They understand you know, the different avenues that people can go down. And, and, and at the end of the day, if you've got a certain amount of debt, and whether that property is producing $100 a week positive or $100 a week negative, they're going to calculate it the same way and it's mm. still going to have an impact on your servicing. And look, don't get me wrong, there are lenders out there that if properties are held in trusts or company structures, we can look at your, we don't have to include that property's debt into the servicing of the next purchase as long as we don't take into the rental income. But that's a really, I guess, non-conforming type lender and you're not going to be doing that for all your properties. So yeah, and usually, you're, you're paying a premium. That's right. You're paying a premium on interest to do that. You're usually yeah. doing it for properties that you're not going to hold for the long term or your properties that you're likely to develop or, or, or you know, flip. Um, and for the everyday punter, it's not a, it's not yeah. a thing that they should look into because you know, it's probably something you're going to get in a bit of strife. Hmm. Um, so yeah. then in, in, in terms of, let's say we're an average borrower, our income's 100 grand. Let's touch on a bit about the debt service ratios and a rule of thumb for an owner-occupier and investor. What are they looking at rough ballpark yeah, in so terms of multiplying their income? For DTI, services? right? Debt to income. You're probably hearing that a lot at the moment with your banker or your broker that you're speaking to. And it's essentially you know, uh, a number that the banks use to say, well, based on how much your income is, this is how much we'll lend you. Now, ever again, every lender is different, but a rough number is whatever you earn, the bank will lend you six times that amount. So if you earn 100 grand a year, then the bank will lend you 600 grand. Now, that's for an owner-occupier purchase. If we're talking investment, they're going to include in that income your rental income, and there's probably a little bit more flex in it. So you know, you're probably looking at maybe somewhere between seven to nine DTI or debt-to-income ratio. It means for 100,000, you can you know borrow probably seven to, to 900 grand. Um, but you know, the banks are going to become more and more stringent on this mm. as time goes on, not less stringent. Um, so I think now more than ever, as we've always spoken about, it's not about how many properties you buy as an investor because the reality is whether you buy positive or negatively geared, it's not going to dramatically change how much the banks are going to lend you. So it's all about the quality of those assets and making sure that with the amount of debt that you're going to be able to service at a gross level, you fill that debt with the best properties that you can fill it with because you're not going to have an unlimited supply of money coming from banks to continue to buy property. Unless you do a low doc. <laughs> yeah, well, Even you know, then. to do a low doc loan, you've got to be self, you know, yeah. most time you've got to be self-employed. You've got to have an accountant that is creative and maybe not 100% <laughs> abiding by, uh, you know, the law or well, not the law, but, you know, by, by, by the standards. Um and you've got to not be truthful, right? Mm. Like that's, you're essentially saying that the low doc loan, what a low doc loan is, is virtually 
you tick a box to say, yes, I can pay this. Your accountant signs to say, yes, he can pay this or she can pay this and the bank gives you the money. So, but to, to do the reason most people do that is because mm. they're being a little bit creative. So back in, um, in loans, effectively what you've got is you've got people that pay their tax and, and have tax returns and financials or you have people that don't declare their taxable income, run financials and then effectively, like Jack said, their accountant can s- sign off on how much they've earned for that financial year. Um, and then that's a way that people can inflate effectively their incomes. Mm. Now, off, I guess, servicing and income, it's an interesting point is what type of, I guess, loan do we take? Do we take a principal and interest? Should we be taking interest only? And when will we look at the different types? So personally, my whole portfolio is interest only. So, and the reason for that is is because obviously investment debt is tax deductible debt and I want to have as much tax deductible debt as I can because, you know, I want to, I want to take advantage of the taxation system in a legal way. Um, but there's not a one size fits all. Like usually you want to go interest only for investments, but if you've hit a serviceability limit and you can no longer invest, then, you know, you might switch those loans to principal and interest or start using an offset account to start decreasing some of that debt, which is going to essentially free up Hmm. your servicing. Um, But the reason most people go interest only is because principal and interest repayments are probably somewhere between 50 to 100% more than what your interest only repayments are. So as soon as you switch from interest only to P&I, you're looking at paying, you know, somewhere between half and double what uh, what you were paying. So if you look at that and go, okay, well, I'm paying $1,000 a month for rough numbers interest only, but to go P&I, it's going to cost me $1,750. With that extra $750, instead of paying down the debt on one property, why don't I keep that interest only at $1,000 a month and then use that extra $750 to go buy another property? Hmm. And now all of a sudden, you've got two properties in the marketplace both growing in value, both increasing your asset base, and it's costing you the same from a cash flow perspective. Um, but you can only do that until you hit that serviceability limit, right? Um, and I get this question a lot is, how long can you go interest only for? You know, people say you can only go interest only for three years or two years or five years. The reality is, yes, you can. You can only go for two, three or five years or you know, sometimes 10 years. You have to have very good servicing to be able to do that. But what you do at the end of that period is you refinance your loan. To ex- mm. So essentially what that means is you get to the end of your interest only period, you go back to the bank and say, hey, Mr. Bank or Mrs. Bank Manager, I want to um, refinance. I want to you know, essentially redo my loan, restart my loan. That's essentially what a refinance means. Maybe withdraw some equity. And then all of a sudden your loan goes from you know, a 25-year loan term at the end of your five-year interest only period. So you had a 30-year loan period to give in to begin with. Five years into that of interest only, it's down to 25. And now essentially what you're saying is from 25 to zero, you are going to pay off the principal. And when you refinance, you essentially go, okay, well, now I'm going to redo that loan. So it goes back to a 30-year loan term and you have that you know, time frame of interest only. Um, but when you go uh, owner-occupier, you usually want to pay P&I off because that debt is not mm. tax deductible debt. And that's, um, and I'll give you a case study. For example, when I bought my first investment property i chose to do a principal and interest loan because it it actually enables you to borrow more for the one purchase the way they calculate interest only loans is like jack mentioned you only have a 25 year loan term and out of that 25 years five years is is interest only Mm. so they instead of you having a 30 year loan term where they'll calculate that debt of 30 years you have a shorter time period of 25 so you're 
servicing is shorter when you have when you're buying one property but if i own multiple properties that are interest only my monthly repayment will be less than having three properties at principal and interest so because i'm paying less outgoing i can actually service more debt because my monthly expenses are lower so in some circumstances like when i bought my first one i wanted to maximize my serviceability for the first purchase i use principal and interest for that purchase but then now that I'm converting to holding more assets, interest only is a better tool for cash flow and also paying off, you know, tax deductible debt. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of people say and ask the question around like, well, what lender should I go with, right? Or what bank do I go to? Do you have your money split across multiple lenders or do you have it all with one? Like... The answer to that is there is not a one-size-fits-all model. My mentality has been the whole way through my investing journey is I couldn't care if the fucking loan document said Judo Bank, it said Latrobe, it said CBA, or it said Pepper. Like mm. the only thing I care about is the money. Is who's giving me the money? You know, <laughs> yeah. that's the only thing that matters because whoever's giving me the money is allowing me to leverage you know, and buy more property. So that's not going to work for everyone, right? I think. For a lot of people, they get caught up in, oh, well, that's a 4.5% interest rate <laughs> and I can get a 3.99 for so-and-so. Like, you know, those people are the people who are trying to save their way to yeah, wealth well. instead of grow their way to wealth. So, mm. you know, the, the lender you need to go with is the lender who's willing to say, we really like you, Jack, or we really like you, Daniel. We're going to lend you more money than every other lender. That's mm. the lender you want to go with because they've got confidence in you at that point in time. Exactly. And I think uh, a big misconception with a lot of Australians is they don't realize how many banks or lending institutes actually exist in Australia. You know, mm. we've got over 360 plus funders that are willing to lend at a given point in time. And in the way we navigate this, and I see this time and time again, particularly with our clients that come to us, is they begin the process of getting capital by going to their bank that mm. they're close with, right? I started like that. ANZ just down there in Windsor just popped just on a, in and said, a, "How are you, Jody?" Just a new. Can, just can I just have a loan, now. thanks? And Jody just hooked me up, mate. Just mm. big Jodes, just boom, boom out the back. Seven twenty. My first one was a Westpac loan. But um, what I want to get to now is like the difference between going to a bank direct and then mm. having a really good mortgage broker and the benefits of using a broker that not many people know about. Yeah, and 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 on top of that. It's um, not all brokers are the same either, right? Like, so like I said, my first loan with Jody from the ANZ in Windsor, second loan with Jody from the ANZ at Windsor, didn't understand what cross collateralization so, yeah. meant, Talk you know? That. So they were cross collateralized. I was like, fuck yeah, cross that shit up. You know, I had no idea. Um, learned a little while later that it wasn't great and it was, you know, a little bit hard to untangle. Um, but essentially what cross collateralization means is when you're buying a property, say property number two, they securitize that property with property number one. So essentially, if you fail to make payments on one property, they take both of them, <laughs> which is not good. You know, yeah. what you should be doing or, you know, what you can be doing, not should be doing, it's can't, can't advise people, um, is, you know, you go through and do an equity release loan where you cash out an amount and then use that equity to go buy another property. Um, but essentially, yeah, I went to ANZ, ANZ, then on property number three, I met a wealth planner. The wealth planner said, oh, have you had a mortgage broker? And I was like, what's a mortgage broker? No idea. Anyway, I got introduced to this How was lovely the wealth lady. Planner? Huh? How was the wealth planner? It's good. He still manages all my parents, you know, oh, really? funding now. He, you know, it was so funny. I first met him when I was a, 
uh, I don't know, 18 or 19 year old kid and, you know, now <laughs> I'm 26 and he's, you know, managing a lot of money with a nationwide and I think an international wealth firm and he refers me clients now. Really? <laughs> yeah, so it's funny. Um, anyway, back to what I was saying. So then I went to a mortgage broker. That mortgage broker taught me about cross-collateralization and why I had to undo that. And, you know, this is how we buy property number three. And, you know, I learned so much. And then I went back for property number four and she said, oh, Jack, I can't get you any more money. And I said, well... I don't think you know who I am. I don't take no for an answer. So, you know, I went from I went from the broker, said, thank you so much. I found another broker and that broker said, well, I can get your money. So all of a sudden I took on my loans to that broker because he could get me the money for property number four. You know, property number five come along. He, he, I don't know, something happened there and it didn't work out. And then I found another broker and that broker got me the money. And now I've been with, with Darren, my current broker for the last five or so purchases. And, you know, he's just been incredible. But, I think the thing is, you need to understand that the bigger your ambitions, the more you've got to not take no for an answer, right? Because there's, like you said, there's 360 people out there who are public who will give you money. So mm. you just need to understand who's who's going to give me the money at that Man, point in time. It's so true. Back when I was in lending, we used to say there was any deal, there's a funder that will fund it. 100%. You know? It's just being creative with, you know, there's prime lenders. You've got your first tier banks, CBA, Commonwealth, like ANZ, Westpac. Mm. You got your second tiers like your Latrobe, Pepper, you know, Resimac, all that, and then you got your private lenders. And these people are the people that will give you money and you don't even have to service that debt in monthly repayments. You can actually, here's a million dollars, take my million, go buy a property, land bank that site, and don't pay my million back until you've executed the highest and best use of the property or refinanced, and then pay me one point two back and that two you know, hundred grand is effectively the interest. That's right. Wanted. They usually want to securitize against something. Yeah. Like there's a little bit more to it, but you can do that. And you know, now I'm looking at stuff where I've got the expertise and the connections to go and put deals together. And there's a lot of people who don't have the expertise and the connections, but have a lot of money. So now I'm partnering those with, with those people. And you know, I'm not using any of my own funds because my funds are in between my ears, and that that's the value yeah. that I'm bringing to the transaction and. And the person who has the money, you know, wants to be able to deploy that money somewhere in something that's going to get them a high ROI. So, you know, as you get more and more sophisticated, um, you can own 50% of a deal with no cash in and, you know, essentially create money out of thin air. And, and that's the power. So I think the, the, the learning from, from, from that is um, not all lenders are created equally. At different points in your journey, you're going to need different lenders, you know. <clears throat> Um, don't be scared of second tier and non-bank lenders like mm. because they're very, very powerful at certain points in the journey and paying 1% or 2% higher on the interest rate is a very, very small amount of money in comparison to having 8 to 10% capital growth on a property for the next 20 years. Mate, most definitely. And it, it's funny, once you start learning the different types of lenders and what they can and can't do, there's a whole scope of loans. Like There's even second mortgages we can do, fast transactions where you can get money in 24, 48 hours. Mm. You know, there's creative where you can do construction loans where you don't need pre-sales. Um, so there's a whole banquet of, of different loans that will enable you to fulfill a commercial purpose and profit from that deal. Exactly. Faster than what you could have. If you there's waited. so many people who probably don't understand the jargon we're going on with right yeah, now. And exactly. to be honest, I never used to understand it either. But that's why the, it's so important to have people on your team that, that do understand it, right? Like mm. if I go to my lawyer and say, well, what does this mean? And he says, it means this and so section 106, 78 BC in the Marbo. 
I got no idea what he's talking about, but I trust that he knows. <laughs> right? the tr- they just drive the machine. That's right. So that and that's the importance of having a good team that you can trust, right? Yeah. Like a lawyer is fee for service, an accountant is fee for service. Other people got no idea what you know accountants do, but you pay them a fee for service, and that's what's so important to understand. Like, have a good broker on your side. Like, they're going to be able to educate you and make you a lot more money than it's going to cost. Have a good buyer's advocate or property expert on your side who understands things because they're going to make you a lot more money than they're going to cost you. It's a great point. And then on that point as well, like brokers, nine times out of 10, you're not having to pay for that service. The banks pay the broker. Yeah. Unless you're doing more commercial types of lending. But again, that's a bit more complex for a later topic. Let's jump into, you're in a process now where you're refinancing equity. Mm -hmm. Can you run us through that process? Because a common question I get asked, I'm sure you do as well, is not many people are aware of the fact that property can go up in value. That increase in equity, you can pull that out and use it to, you know, buy property or other goods Mm. what's that process like and how have you run that process so essentially what happens is right you buy a property for what'd you buy tell us yeah let's use let's use the example so i bought two apartments in the same block in 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 a complex in bar beach um i bought one of them for 670 and i bought the other one for 710 so i haven't touched them since i bought them they've just let them grow and do their thing so the one that i bought for 670 was in uh 2017 I think it was, twenty late of 2017, early 2018. Um, now that property, as of last week, is worth in the bank's eyes, 900 grand. So I've created $230,000 worth of growth or roughly 33% in a couple of years. Now, pretty good numbers. With, with that, with that $230,000, I don't have to sell the property to realize that money. What <laughs> I can do now is go back to the bank like I did, got a valuation, and the bank says, Jack, we're happy to lend you up to 80% of the property value if you can service that loan. Now, what's 80% of 900,000? We're talking about 720 grand. Now, I paid 670. You might think, oh, there's only $50,000 available equity. Well, no, because I put down a 20% deposit. So I can pull out the 20% that I put in originally, which was 130 odd thousand, say, plus then that mm. extra 50 grand. So, you know, out of that transaction, let's just hypothetically say for rough numbers, I'll pull out 150. So yep. the bank will say, Jack, here's 150. They deposit that straight into my bank account. Now, my loan on that property increases then to 720. So I've got more debt against that property, but I've now got 150 grand cash. What can you do with that cash? It sits oh, in a bank friend. account. I, I have a bucks party this weekend. <laughs> um, He's so going as with, always. with that 150, you can really do whatever you want. Like if you're irresponsible with money, you can blow that money. Um, just essentially like a personal loan, right? Now look, banks are going to ask you, what are you <clears throat> intending to do with this money? Um, and, you know, obviously what you intend to do with that money should be to invest it. To, mm. to compound it and make it grow even further. Even crypto? Yeah, crypto, shit, yeah. <laughs> no, no crypto. Um, so, but then I've got the other apartment, right? I yeah. paid 710 for that one. That was only last year. In um, July of last year, I bought that. And a year on, it's just been valued at 815. So I made a hundred something thousand dollars. Yeah. 100 Gs, baby. What did you put into that? What was the deposit? So 20? I went into that with, well, I used equity from another properties. So I put in of my own money that I worked for 5% as a deposit on exchange. So I put in 35,000 of cash. And that 35,000 has just then turned into 100, so 300% ROI on my money. Wow. So now I pull out <clears throat> that money out of that property and I'll combine the two. So between the two properties, I think I've got just under 250 
in cash. That'll be sitting in an offset account. Mm-hmm. And the reason it goes into an offset account is because then I don't pay any interest on the money, which means I essentially, it's like I haven't released the money. Like a big credit card. Yeah, until I use it. And then as soon as you use it, you start paying interest on those funds. Um, and then what you do with that money is you then go and invest it. So with that 250, I can then go buy another, if I wanted to, you know, $2 million worth of assets with a 10% deposit. That's what I could do. Um, what will you do with that money? Probably that. I'll probably get excited one day, see a property and buy it. And they're like, shit, <laughs> why don't I do that? <laughs> um, what, would you, what would you buy for $2 million? What would I buy with two mil? Um, I looked at a pretty sick apartment in Bronte yesterday that I'm, <laughs> I really like. Uh, that's not a good thing to buy though. No, so with that, with that money, if I was going to buy something, I would go and buy a development site now. So I'd go and buy a house um, for probably one and a half. That's got rental income, you know, I'd say 750, 800 bucks a week and I would just keep it there and then do a DA on it. That's what I would do with the money. Um, and what I will do with the money. Ah, yeah. Smart. Okay. So, and obviously because you've paid 1.5 and you get the excess cash and then you use the excess cash for the UDA. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll get a long settlement on the property, put down 5%. So on, you know, one and a half, put down 75 of that 250 and then ideally get a really long settlement. And then during settlement period, ideally buy a site that you don't have to get a DA on, just do a CDC, which is complying yep. development, much quicker through council, 10 to 12 weeks, and then build or i might use the cash to build my property on the river i don't know what i'll use it for but um essentially what what the whole the whole spiel of of the equity is you have buffer right like you have Mm. cash that you can use and even though it is debt it is debt yes but the great thing about debt is it's tax deductible Mm. you know um you don't on that 250 if i earned that as an income 80 grand of that's gone straight away tax man just goes bloop thank you you don't pay that on on capital growth because mm. you're not selling, so you're not paying capital gains tax. You're refinancing, so you're paying interest on that money. And <laughs> the money is going to generate much more growth and cash flow than it's going to cost me in 4% interest. So let's say you've uh, refinanced 250s in the bank. You're about to spend another 2 mil on property. Mm-hmm. Your portfolio would be worth what? circa 18 19 million something yeah give or take if you buy that next property what would be your debt level at that point in time roughly 80 percent so whatever 80 percent let's do a quick math on 18 million yeah so if you take off 20 percent 3.6 i'd be looking at like 14 mil worth it thereabouts yeah so about 14.4 million this is a great point i want to cover because we've got 14.4 million worth of debt which cost how much will that cost to cash flow with no rental income with rental let's say what's the shortfall between the no. rental so the, the overall thing. interest repayments on that would be probably 750 a year 750 grand a year yeah just with no rental income that's just with what no it costs me and then obviously i've got rental income coming from the assets um you know and it probably costs me oh, out of my pocket pre-tax maybe like 200 how do you cash flow? Because this is a great point you talked on today mm. at Manor. How do you cash flow that 200? And then how do you end up paying down the debt? Or you do not. Yeah. How do you get to that point where your LVR is no longer 80%? Yeah. So that's the thing, right? Like I'll never ever pay down one cent of that debt. I'll, it'll, my debt levels will only get bigger and bigger as my life goes on. But in relativity to the debt, the asset values also get much more 
um, you know, they, they, they expand, right? They get, they get higher in value. And a lot of people go, oh, what about the market shits itself? Oh, what about if it doesn't grow? What about if you go into negative equity? Like, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? I'd rather bet, bet with history. And the last 150 years of uh, Australian history shows us that property grows at 6.5% year on year compounding, Australia-wide. That's including shit areas as well. Um, so essentially, let's hypothetically say my my portfolio cost me 200 grand negative per year, which is more than most people earn, right? That's what it cost me to hold the assets. <laughs> but let's say that portfolio conservatively grows at 7% per year compounding. Some years I get 20%, some years I get none. But let's just say on average 7% year on year. So over the next 10 years, it grows at 7% year on year. That 18 mil goes from 18 to 36. And let's hypothetically say my debt levels remain the same and I don't refinance any more equity, I stop buying property. All of a sudden, I've got $14.5 million worth of debt and I've got $36 million worth of assets. My LVR goes from 80% to 30% in one microcycle. That's the power. And now, let's say it cost me 200 grand a year to hold that property as well, right? Those properties. So over 10 years, it cost me 2 million bucks to hold the portfolio for 10 years. But... I just made $18 million. So to make 18 and spend two, not a bad ROI, right? You're still 16 mm. million bucks up. So what you do for people who are a little bit more sophisticated and, and a little bit you know, better at, underst- uh, at, at managing risk and, and uh, can continue to increase their debt levels due to their, their income, um, what you do is say, okay, well, if it's gonna cost me 200 grand a year to hold the portfolio, and I want to have five years worth of runway, right? Runway meaning buffer? Meaning buffer. Like if it's going to cost me a million dollars to hold this portfolio for, for five years, I don't want it to cost me anything out of my pocket. I, don't, I want to pretend that the portfolio is costing me zero. So the portfolio grows. I just said, you know, I've got 14 and a half million worth of debt, but the portfolio is worth 36 million. There's a lot of equity there, right? So let's say I just refinance. I pull out $2 million worth of cash out of that portfolio. I put that two mil in an offset account and it cost me 200 grand a year to run the portfolio. That's 10 years worth of runway. So, so effectively got, you use the equity from the portfolio. You're using to, debt to service debt. Debt to service debt. Yeah, which is great because it's all tax deductible. It's <clears> great. It's awesome. And guess what? When you've got $20 million in debt, that's not my problem. The <laughs> bank's got a problem. Yeah. Not me. You reckon they're going to be upset and work with me? Of course. If you've got a half a million dollars worth of debt, you're in trouble. The mm. bank doesn't care about you. They'll sell your property. If you've got $20 million worth of debt, the bank loves you. They want to work with you. Come on, we can make this work, Jack. What you, you know, like that's the reality of it. The, the, the reality of the world it is, is, is that is, it is created by wealthy people for wealthy people, whether you like that or not. That's the reality. Mm. Um, so the more debt I get, the bigger the portfolio gets, the more of a, of a, of, of a liability I am for the bank, right? Which means they really want to work with me because... I, I owe them a lot of money. Mm. <laughs> um, and you're essentially servicing debt with debt. Yeah, so, you know, all, you've, all I have to bet on is that if I've got 10 years worth of servicing sitting in an offset account so I can kick my feet up and not have to worry about paying any of my mortgages for 10 years, I've just got to be confident that on a $36 million portfolio, it's going to be worth $2 million more at the end of that 10-year period. You reckon that's a pretty safe bet? Bloody hell. I think so. And that's... You know, that's essentially how it works. And that's finance and that's lending. 
And that's it. You know, it's about understanding that debt is your friend if you do it in a strategic way. And if you've got enough runway sitting in, a, in, in an offset account, you ride out these bumps and humps, mm. right? I'm probably at the highest risk right now because I'm continuing to scale at a rapid level. So I don't have heaps of runway, right? My runway comes from me working my ass off every day. That's my runway. Um, but, you know, when you get to a level where you go, okay, sweet, I'm happy. I don't mm. need to acquire any more. You start to, you know, set things up in a very strategic way and, and, you know, actually by having a lot more debt is safer than having less debt. You mentioned setting things up in a strategic way. A, a common thread is people talk about trusts and setting things up in different names. I want to uh, touch on buying property in individual name versus buying property in trusts. Why you buy in trusts or company structures? I know you've bought property in different entities than yourself. Mm. Um, and just kind of break down what that looks like. So starting with trust, I want to just highlight how that looks in, in a picture. So generally when you buy a property using that entity, we call it a corporate entity. You have a trustee, which is becomes the legal owner of that property. So let's say I want to buy 10 Smith Street. I use a trustee to effectively become the owner of that property. I then place that trustee into, let's say, a family trust. So that have the overarching family trust, that property which is held by the trustee gets placed into the family trust, and then I can disperse any of the, you know, the income to the beneficiaries, depending if it's a discretionary trust or not. Um, that's kind of what, how I wanted to, to start this. What's your take on companies' trusts? How have you implemented it in your portfolio, and how do they serve you to have continued to expand? Um, so, look, I think companies and trusts are not necessarily that important for people who don't have a big portfolio or, or carry a lot of risk with the career or the business that they're in. They just make things more complicated and more expensive. Um, obviously, when you own things in a trust or a company, you don't get, cap you don't get uh, capital gains tax exemptions, you don't get land tax exemptions, um, and it costs money to keep them up and running and, and, and um, to set them up as well. So it, it, it becomes costly. But when you're doing them for a reason, like protection, like... Um, you know, uh, for, for, for safety and because you're doing things with other people in joint ventures, for example, then that cost is, is, is you know, a part of doing business. But I think too many people get too caught up in it too soon. So like if you've got one or two properties and you, you know, an average punter, I don't think you need to worry about that sort of stuff, right? It might mm. sound cool to say, oh, I've got a property owned in a trust or a company. It's like, I don't give a, it's stupid, you know? Um, but for me now, like, Obviously, I'm getting to a point where the business is starting to grow. I've got a you know personal brand that's growing. There's probably going to be some point in my life where someone doesn't like me or, or wants to come after me, and because of that, um, it makes sense to to do things in a in a in a company or a trust structure because they can come after me, but they can't come after the companies or the trusts. Um, and another thing is, you know, as like I said, I'm starting to do things now with other people and joint ventures, and it's much easier to own. Uh, so for example, you set up a unit trust, um, and let's just say there's a hundred units in that trust. The trust owns the company. We own units in the trust. So, you know, if there's two owners, you have 50 units each and the trust owns the property. And it's very, it's a very easy way to, um, you know, own something with another person and, and, and have it set up correctly and to be able to exit much easier as well. Um, 
But the main reason is obviously protection for doing JVs um, and, you know, you don't need to do it if you're if you're a normal person. It's it's very similar to like diversification. You know, mm. like people talk about diversification, diversification. Like if you've got one or two properties or three properties, like you don't need to worry about diversifying, bro. You got you got more issues. You know, you got to worry about so many other things. I believe in specialization over diversification. You know, if you understand a market like the back of your hand, you know the properties inside of that market that will perform better than any other property. You have relationships that are yielding incredible results because you're getting access to properties that no one else has, you will see much higher returns than going, hey, I'm going to go to Adelaide because I'm going to diversify. Like, you know, it's, it's just not needed. Mm. What do you think your uh, most specialized area is? As in locations? Yeah. Well, like the markets that I work in, Newcastle and Sydney. Like, I could get access to any property that I wanted, like, you, you know, if I really put my mind to it. You know, mm. I understand, you know, for developments and stuff like that, the zonings of, of a location, how much... You know, you can actually sell a product for when it's finished. Um, you know, if I don't have the answer to something, it takes me two phone calls and I do have the answer to something, mm. you know, like that's much more powerful than being across three markets. Yeah. And that's what I try and tell our clients is like, you don't need to worry about diversifying. You don't need to worry about going to Brisbane and going to Perth. Like that's bullshit. What you need to worry about is like having an expert who understands the markets you are investing into and buying the best assets you can buy in those marketplaces. Solid advice. I think um, that kind of wraps up the segment. I'm sure you've got some work to jump on, but I, I wanted to do a couple of Q&As because there's been a few people um, reach out and wanted to ask you a few questions. Mm -hmm. um, any last thoughts before we jump into Q&A? No, I think, it's, I think it's all very, very good stuff. I think the, the overarching message that you know, we convey is keep things simple use a common sense approach um you know have a good team of people around you that you can trust um and be curious you know don't don't be fixed minded be growth minded right mm. that's super important can i just add one thing that's on my mind now is the fact that people have bought off the plan mm. at the top of the market and all the valuations are going to come in short What's your advice to these people? They're going to get hammered. Yeah. It's cool. It's pretty bad. Also, the building crisis. I, I know so many people now that are... Um, but... They haven't got... Their projects aren't built. They're servicing debt on land that hasn't got a tenant. The issue with the buying the off-the-plan stuff is people... There's nothing actually wrong with it. Like, if you want to go buy off-the-plan, by all means, go and buy off-the-plan and buy new. But people actually don't understand the risk when they go into it. That's the issue. Mm. I bought an off-the-plan property mid-COVID um low deposit i paid five grand to this developer to secure an asset unconditionally and i had two years worth of runway before it was going to be built right now in the middle of covid most people like they are right now were thinking the market's going to be significantly worse as time goes on not better and i took a punt but i calculated the risk going if this doesn't pay off i paid 550 for the apartment if it goes the opposite way to what I think it's going to go, I thought the market was going to increase so I could turn my five into a you know, hefty hefty uh, profit. If the market goes the other way and I settle or I get to settlement and the apartment now is worth 450, not 550, two things are going to happen. I have to come up with a 20% deposit to settle on the 450 apartment and I have to come up with a $100,000 gap, right? Fortunately for me, I had portfolio behind me which would have given me the capacity to be able to do that so i i understood the risks and i was willing to take the risks but for most people they don't have the capacity to do that you know like you you buy something off the plan or you buy something new 
people think that it's all going to be rosy and daisy and, and it's going to be definitely worth more in two years than it is right now. Um, and you settle or come to settlement, it's not worth more, it's worth less. Or the valuations come in you know, worse than what you expected. And in that lies, lies the risk. So again, it's a lack of due diligence and it's a lack of curiosity and it's a, I'm an expert. Mm. you know that's that's what people have it's i know everything and you know this is this is what's right when it's not right speaking of not right this is a, a question from one of the listeners which happens all the time areas of interest with the current drop in value across sydney what are your thoughts on people that change where they buy because of what's happened in the market it's stupidity it's so stupid yeah yeah it's it's Again, trying to get rich overnight, right? Like we spoke about this this morning at Manor. <clears throat> it's very easy to get caught up in the the issues at hand because we're looking at life on a microscope, right? Because we're in the day-to-day. A lot of the time what we need to do is zoom out from our day-to-day life and the information we're getting on a regular basis, which is, you know, dazing our decision-making and just look at the fundamentals. Like this is all a part of a cycle. People say, oh, this has never happened before. Debt levels are at the highest they've ever been. Interest rates are at the lowest they've ever been. It's gonna be a huge correction. Blah, 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 blah. Like, okay, sweet. Like, and, and there's a chance that it could be the worst correction we've ever had. But I would much rather bet with history saying that after every correction comes good times and after all good times come bad times as well. And know that, you want to invest in the same properties in the same locations and have a long-term approach as opposed to going okay interest rates are going up right let's go let's go chase positive gearing let's go a little bit more regional now and get some you know more cash flow because that's going to cover off this interest rates they're short-term metrics it's like a band-aid fix right like this issue arises we'll just chuck a band-aid on that this issue, oh we'll chuck a band-aid on that you know and it and, and the majority of these people get 15 20 years down the track and have made very very little amount of money like very little um, amounts of money in comparison to the time and the effort that they've put into put into it, mm. you know? Um, but yet they hold one owner-occupier property for their whole life and that's the property that does the best. Yeah. You know, like true, they don't it? sell their owner-occupier property when it comes to, oh, the market's getting a bit tough, we'll flog that and we'll go buy something cheaper, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But then you look at how much growth you've had on the owner-occupier asset over a 30 or 40-year period and it's out of this world. My parents had... 8.7% compound growth over a 12-year period of owning their owner-occupier residence. And then I went back to... So they bought that in 2010 or nine their property. And then I went back to like, you know, 1996. You know, like, like let's get it up. It's actually really interesting numbers. And this is a property in an area that you would not consider as like a... I don't think this is any on anyone's... Hot, 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 hot tip of the week list, you know? So, in 1996, this property sold for $270,000. My parents just sold it for $2.25 million. So, since 1996 to 2022, we've got a 26-year wow. time horizon. And it's 8 x its value. But between... Let's go between... 2005 to 2010. So the buyer in 2005 paid 650. Mm-hmm. The buyer in 2010, five years later, paid 678. Wow. Right? So if you look at that in, on a microscope, terrible investment. They made 30 grand. They would have lost money. 
stamp duty, selling costs. They didn't make any money on that property. My parents buy it for six seventy eight in two thousand and ten, and in twenty twenty two sell it for two point two five million dollars. You know, and 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 it just shows. This is an awesome reflection to say, between nineteen ninety six and two thousand, the year two thousand, in four years the property grew by, uh, one hundred and twenty grand or about forty percent. Between 2000 and 2005, the property grew from 390 to 650, so by $260,000 or by roughly 40%. From 2005 to 2010, it grew by 2 or 3%, not even, like 1% would be, oh yeah, about 2%. But then from 2010 to 2022, it grew by 300%. So... It just, what this reflects is it's time in the marketplace, right? Mm. Just because a property didn't grow from 05 to 2010 doesn't mean it's not a good property. It means that unfortunately for that person, they've, they've gotten in and gotten out too soon, right? Um, and, and, you know, I think that's, that's the issue people make with trying to change their investment divisions based on the marketplace. Mm. Um, because if you bought the property in 2010 and sold it in 22 and made 300% almost on your money, you wouldn't be upset, right? But it's the same asset that sold from 05 to 010 for 30 grand more. It's the same asset, just different times. So that's a really good example of a case you. study. Thank you. I'm a very, I'm a good, I'm a good person who runs good examples. Very quick, Kinkar. Next question: What down payment do you need for a 400 to 600 grand property? First time buyer or not first time? Go buyer? first time buyer. For a four hundred to six hundred thousand dollar property as a first home buyer in New South Wales, you would need a five percent deposit, and you would pay no lender's mortgage insurance, and you would pay no stamp duty if you come under the income threshold of one hundred and twenty grand for singles. So that's approximately a thirty grand. Yeah, twenty to thirty grand you would need cash to be able to buy that property, which for the majority of people they'd probably spend that on piss and drugs in one year if you're a first home buyer between <coughs> the ages of eighteen and thirty. How much is surrounded bucks a weekend times? Fifteen grand. Wow. Oh, yeah. If you bought a, if you bought one bag for fifty weeks, that is fifteen grand. Oh. Most people will do that. If it's not one bag every week, it might be like two bags on a weekend yeah, you and then do, none. Yeah, then none. Plus drinks and all the other stuff, you know. We're not an advocate for this stuff as well. If I'm a you, buyer's advocate. <laughs> if you go interest only, then extra equity in 12 to 24 months do you then put back on interest only and for how long so that again if you go interest only then extract equity in 12 24 months do you then put it back to interest only and then for how long yeah so you that's what we're talking about refinancing right so yeah. you're essentially redoing your loan um so if you were you had a loan you pulled out equity you had a house you, or a property you pulled out equity you have to refinance a loan to do that. So you're essentially then renewing a new loan term and a new loan product. Um, so you go back to interest only. Yep. Perfect. This comes back to what we're saying with not changing the strategy. But question, when targeting cash flow positive assets, do you primarily look for commercial or resi properties? Um, I don't target them there's better things in the world that produce better cash flow than real estate I, I personally believe in Australia example uh, business um, equities you know share portfolio that I was looking at on Monday last year was about 
half a bar, 500 grand in, 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 in an equities portfolio returned 9.8% cash. Cash flow. And the reason that is, is because you've got high yielding or, or, or shares that pay high Dividend. dividends. Yeah. You get franking credits. Mm, um, that's tax benefits for the yeah, people I don't know. And, and they're, they're, it's just much better, I believe, than, than, than property. Property is for leverage. Other assets, it's for, it's for cash flow. I think commercial assets can be good if you buy... I don't think small commercial assets are good, like little you yeah, know, shitters. So, yeah. But I think big commercial assets... Industrial. Yeah, like you know, what the real wealthy people carry in their portfolios. Um, hotels? Yeah, like I don't know about hotels. I'm not, definitely not a hotel expert yet. I will be soon. Henderson Hotels. Um, yeah, that like that that that's powerful. So... Um, Short answer to that is you shouldn't be chasing cash flow properties. You should be looking at property overall as a business and going, well, how can I turn my small amount of cash that I have into a large amount of cash? Um, and then when I've got that large amount of cash, how do I transition that into something that produces cash flow? Yeah. Perfect. And then the last one to wrap it up, I'm currently deciding what property investment strategy best suits me. Maybe you could explain the different types uh, of strategies used in real estate as well as your opinion on the best strategy again that sort of leads on from that question there there really is only one strategy when investing in property and that is how do i multiply my money that's the strategy right then it's about the assets you buy so you know you essentially want to create the largest asset base you can create in the time that you're you know investing so, like I said, I don't go for cash flow producing properties. People can do that, but that's not a strategy. That's an asset that you're choosing as a, as a part of the overall portfolio. Your strategy is you're trying to generate cash flow, you're mm. trying to generate growth. Um, so, I think if you're someone who, you know, is a low or middle income earner and doesn't really have the capacity to pay out, you know, X amount of dollars on a mortgage every month, the gap between the rent and the mortgage, then maybe buying an asset for you having it be positively cash flowed and then just using that positive cash flow to pay down the debt and then having an unencumbered asset producing cash flow is a good thing right because it's an asset paying for itself essentially that can be awesome um but do you do i think it'll get the outcome that a high growth asset will get you in the same amount of time probably not um so again i think you need to look at it and go well the reason i'm investing regardless of what the asset class is, is because you want to multiply the money that you're putting in. That's that's what you're doing it for, is to multiply money and you have to then look at it and go, well, how can I multiply my money as fast and as conservative as, as I possibly can? And um, growth is the way that you, you do that. So you need to buy an asset that reflects long-term capital growth. Now you know. And now you know, man. I am fucking so tired. <laughs> Hold on. <sighs> I have spoken today <laughs> have spoken. for hours, bro. <laughs> and I've got one more to go. Fuck. And you've got a webinar. You actually have spoken for hours.